This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7, and I'm your host, Stuart Parker. It's Monday, the 3rd of May, and you are listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7 FM. Well, this week, the political panel went into an issue of cross-jurisdictional significance, child care. We have an exciting program, uh, possibly, that the federal government uh, may implement to create a national child care uh, program. And we also have uh, a provincial government that has uh, stated the goal of moving towards affordable $10 a day child care sometime into the term after this one or maybe the term after that. Anyway, our usual political panel, Cheryl Weens from the Green Party, uh, Ryan Campbell from the BC Liberals, Sam Schechter from the New Democrats, and Nathan Gita, whose affiliation may be in flux. Still a provincial Tory, but uh, very involved with the Western separatist movement these days. Hosting a great show for them, by the way. Uh, Mountain Standard Time, it broadcasts on YouTube and uh, Facebook. It obviously comes from a radically different perspective ideologically than I, except on Thursdays when I'm a regular guest in the uh, 10 a.m. to noon morning show with Nathan, where I talk about ideas of economic nationalism. Uh, it's my strong opinion that uh, the separatists will have no more control of their communities if they leave Canada, simply because the people who are controlling their communities are primarily not the state, they're corporations. And when the state does things they don't like, it's usually at the beck and call of corporations whose job it is to ship out our raw materials to be processed somewhere else. All right, we are back once again for the political panel. Uh, Ryan Campbell of the BC Liberals is uh, with us uh, from Vancouver. Uh, Cheryl Weens of the BC Greens on the line from Langley. Nathan Gita of the BC Tories is in motion at present, um, coming in by uh, his uh, cell phone on a trip um, down to Kelowna, which I assume is essential. Uh, so, um, Sam Schechter is running a bit late. We hope to deal our new Democrat in a little bit later in, uh, in the call. But uh, in a way, I think it's interesting to start a conversation about child care with um, the new Democrat not present. Uh, it seems like, like paid sick leave, Child care has really moved up the priority list during um, the period we've been coping with COVID. And so 
I'm I'm interested in hearing from folks. Um, do you guys support a provincially run child care program if the feds continue to not give us a child care program? I know things are looking optimistic on the federal front, but I'm going to be hitting you with a bunch of hypotheticals. And the first one is, um, if, uh, if the Trudeau government uh, doesn't come through, should we go it alone? And I'll start with you, Cheryl. Yeah, the answer to that is yes. Um, very easy yes for me. Um, for every dollar that's um, invested into childcare and early childhood education, um, you know, studies say anywhere between six and nine dollars come back to you. So if the feds don't want to cut of that, that's fine. Um, we'll take the, the winnings there and, um, and it'll benefit our economy. So definitely still in favor. Uh, and um, uh, Nathan, what, uh, what's your perspective on the province uh, stepping in a little bit more forcefully to the childcare business? First of all, uh, of course, as pro, pro BC and all things, uh, you know, and I'm with the sovereignist now uh, at the Western Standard. So I guess, you know, provinces first always. So I am in favor of BC moving into this area. If it chooses to move into this area, it should be a provincial mandate regardless of what the feds do. Uh, at the same time, uh, of course, given given my values and the place where I put priority when it comes to child care and child rearing and the formation of children uh, into both citizens and into members of their families and wider society, I still think that the family is the is the primary vehicle. Um, so I would rather probably, I mean, if, if you want to have more daycare centers or have those subsidized, et cetera, or have a write-off or a tax break, et cetera, like those are all policy options. I would probably try and find a way to just have families that need access to such services subsidized to do so, or even perhaps to try and roll that into maybe a universal basic income program that would see to it that that children were taken care of by their own families because one of the spouses, one of the parents would be free to give that care, perhaps a, perhaps a uh, extended family member or grandparent. That, that would be how I'd like to solve that problem to stay consistent with my values. If we have to stay with the big policy wonk idea sort of things, then I, I could see my way to either a transferable credit or a, a voucher system uh, means testing usually costs a lot of money, so maybe we should just make the means testing really broad. But uh, that would be those would be my preferences. Ryan, your thoughts? Um, well, I'm I'm supportive of it. I'm I'm a little bit disappointed that my party took as long as it did to get on board with this. Um, I believe it was in the most recent platform, but it kind of came across as a ripoff of the NDP. Um, that it didn't feel genuine to me, at least. But better late than never. Uh, I, I do think it makes uh, there's there's both the, the the pragmatic side of this and the normative side of this. The pragmatic side is I think it, it's just it makes economic sense, like Cheryl mentioned, to have um, greater workforce participation, a stronger tax base, makes things better for for everyone in society. But uh, there's also the the, the ethical and, and equity side of it that I think women who want to participate in the workforce should be empowered to do that. Right, that that uh, you shouldn't be forced into you know, centuries old gender roles, and they're not completely centuries old because this division of labor is not the natural state of humanity. It's the post-agriculture state of humanity. Um, 
that uh, that I, I think if, if women want to work and, and have a career, they should be able to do that. So um, there's general su support for this. Now, I had, um, I had some interesting interactions in 2013. Uh, now, 2013 election, um, this was the first time the NDP ran on a go-it-alone provincial child care program. And I happen to, for personal reasons, be in close touch with the women who head the, headed the BC Association of Child Care Advocates. And um, Sharon and Susan privately opposed this policy and very, very reluctantly campaigned for it. Their argument was that um, after the experience in Quebec, if provinces where there's a high level of political support choose to go it alone, it will cause provinces where there isn't um, to continue to not be uh, to not have childcare because it will be seen as unnecessary to roll out a national childcare program. And so we had this very strange situation of the BCNDP for the very first time running on a Quebec style childcare program. And the national movement for childcare, at least its BC representatives, saw that as negative, saw that as problematic. And I'm, uh, I'm similarly reminded of debates over provincial pharmacare uh, that um, people say, well, this is, this is slackening pressure on the federal government. Uh, so I think Nathan is the most likely to have a prepared answer to that particular critique. Um, we'll start off with him and uh, move uh, move forward. Yes, I do, Stuart. I was just, I just, I, I was smiling and grinning the whole way because there's just one word and it's what we SOCONs love so much. It's guns, guns, guns. Uh, we in the socially conservative movement understand how important it is to take out all the gun legislation at once. Uh, and that is why we fight tooth and nail to ensure that nothing penetrates the provinces when it comes to gun legislation. And we push back and fight at the federal level because we don't want the American system where there is literally an ordinance. There are far more gun laws in America than there are in Canada, right down to your county, right down to your town, right down to your community covenant in your neighborhood. There might be laws about guns, whereas in Canada, it is 98 percent federal. So if we manage to take out Bill 68, Bill C-71 someday, and, and the good Lord blesses us, we will finally have a gun culture that is free of tyranny and makes sense. Coming back though, to this question of child care, I actually think that in issues, in issues like this, I do believe in having provinces step out. And the reason I do is I am tired of waiting for the feds. And to be quite frank with you, I don't think that national health care policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, really lead up to anything good. I think Hydro-Quebec does wonders for Quebec. They're in charge of the entire eastern seaboard. I think that provinces need to step out and do those things because guess what? Just make the best province you can. And just like America, where there's Taxachusetts and Mississippi and California and Kentucky, those different states attract different people. Attract different people to your province, build the best province you can, and to hell with the rest of it. If, the, can't, if Canada can't get on board with that, that's their problem. And uh, Cheryl, go ahead. 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's an interesting point, and there is, there is a point there. It would be nice if we could all just adopt the same policies at the same time and work together. But unfortunately, um, there's always going to be a couple provinces that are going to create stress and, and fights with the feds, you know, for a long time and stall progress. And so, you know, Quebec went ahead a long time ago and um, created their own childcare system. And I don't believe that they're going to be cut out of the federal funding that was just announced um, because of that. Uh, I'm sure they'll still get a slice of the pie. So I don't see... Um, I don't see a problem with going ahead and still getting that money should it become available. Also, this is too serious of an issue for people, uh, for families, um, people, guardians with young children to be waiting for decades for the feds to do something. We, if we can do something provincially now, we should. So that's what I think on that. Ryan. Well, you know, having provinces experiment with healthcare didn't stop us from getting national healthcare. I mean, it's, I think quite the opposite. So uh, now, obviously, every country except for America has got to the place of national healthcare. Um, so you don't have to be a federation to do it. But I think the one of the strengths of our system is that different provinces can experiment and we see what works and then we can adopt that nationally. And I think the Quebec model has been a good impetus to adopting this federally. And I think a province going out alone and making it work would help that as well now maybe we screw it up maybe we don't but you know we had tommy douglas do healthcare pretty well we had boss johnson in bc kind of screw it up the first go around uh, but try and that didn't set us back in the long run so um now one of the things that uh you want to think about with child care and nathan touched on this in his first answer is how is that actually delivered in terms of site, in terms of funding, in terms of uh, how, how the government uh, proceeds? Now, one of the interesting things about the BC Association of Childcare Advocates is that um, it was a coalition composed primarily of people already providing childcare, either through for-profit corporations or through quangos, quasi non-governmental organizations. And obviously, uh, and, and that's certainly been the model in Quebec. It's one of the reasons that childcare workers are paid far less than direct employees of the government. It's very, very similar to, um, uh, to uh, elder care facilities where there's the government and then delivery is through something where the workers may or may not be unionized, where training and other standards may be variable, and it allows governments to deliver programs on the cheap. It's um, uh, that, you know, the, that Quebec's budget could not handle a childcare program in which the workers were being paid wages typical of Quebec government employees. Now, there's another, now, there are other models. Um, we see, of course, in Eastern Europe, they developed a model of delivering childcare using bootstrapping government facilities like schools and recreation centers 
and then having direct government employees provide that child care with a certain standard of professional accreditation for doing uh, early childhood education. And then there's the Swedish model, which I found very interesting. It's a system where it's a mix of the first system I described of quangos uh, delivering some of the child care, but large employers delivering a significant portion of the child care. And it's interesting that we often, there's been a lot of talk about how child care programs that are proximate to schools deliver the benefits of schools to the kids in the childcare program, even if they're not of school age. The Swedish model, on the other hand, is based on the idea that um, uh, what, we, what we're prioritizing here is not education, but parental contact. And so the idea of being able to go to another floor of your office building, to go to an outbuilding at the factory you work at, to walk down the street to a place where two major employers are sharing um, a, a childcare unit, it means seeing your kids at lunch more uh, and being able to respond to those kinds of things. Now, obviously that's a significant additional burden on corporations that once they hit a certain size, legislative requirements for childcare facilities come into effect. And so uh, when we think about um, a BC model, uh, how do we want it to show up? And what are, how do people sit on these different trade-offs? Um, I, uh, I think I'll start with Ryan this time, if that's okay. I, I would like to to see like a diversity of options. So I think there's a role for publicly funded ones. I, I think the employer ones uh, are a nice idea too. My workplace has a lot of people that are my age who have young children and if it could be done collectively there and we could get access to public funding, great. Um, I think that point about uh, being paid as much as a, 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 a typical government worker is interesting, but I, I, I think you can still have labor standards. Lots of municipalities have fair wage policies. You could write that in if you wanted. You can have standards that are provincial as well. Um, just look at the difference in the carnage in Ontario's long-term care versus British Columbia's relative, I wouldn't say lack of carnage, but more muted carnage here that uh, better regulations from multiple governments in BC show that it's possible to regulate things well or relatively well. Um, so yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to see flexibility. I'd like to see, you know, not everyone's perfect system is going to be the same for everyone. If you can do it at the school and you have other kids, that's great. I, I would point out an unintended effect of the BC uh, uh, teachers unions uh, winning their court challenge was that class sizes decreased, which pushed school spaces to capacity, which kicked a bunch of uh, childcare facilities out of schools because they were using the excess uh, capacity there. So maybe the teachers could roll back their, uh, their uh, classroom standards a little bit and we could get more childcare for everyone. That's my, that's my classic BC liberal thing is take the stick to the teachers union. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you had, there had to be some sign that you were a member of the party, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> Cheryl, go ahead. 
Yeah, I really don't like that idea. <laughs> um, no, actually, if anything, I want to see uh, um, the education uh, system and childcare work work together more. Um, so I think um, when we're talking about whether or not workers should be unionized um, or what they should be paid, it's important that they get paid enough that people want to do the work. So one of the problems, you can't just create more spaces and then solve the problem of not enough childcare. You actually need the early childhood educators um, to first get the training and want to do that job and then move into that, uh, covering that space. So um, I do think it's going to be very important to have um, some kind of grid a guaranteed wage for these workers to make it uh, attractive enough for enough people to go into it. Um, I would like to see um, more childcare spaces in schools or, you know, adjacent to schools. Um, now that doesn't mean I want to see class sizes uh, increase, but uh, perhaps we can do additions, uh, not portables, uh, not, not a fan of portables. Um, and um, I, I'd like to see um, current private um, operators be given a chance to participate in the system. Um, and yeah, I'm not exactly sure how that will go, but I wouldn't want to be forcing people out of business. But um, I think the way the current fee reduction benefits here in BC works is very respectful of, of um, private business owners and um, allows them to continue operating their own business um, while providing a significant benefit to families in British Columbia. Uh, Nathan, your thoughts on what such a system might look like. You, you talked about this a bit, but I'm especially interested in your take on the balance between um, is childcare education or is it another thing? How much do we prioritize parental presence and parental access when we think about system design? I mean, it depends on which hat I want to wear. I mean, if we want to build Plato's Republic, I guess we can do that. Of course, all the kids are dumped off into the child rearing facilities so all the parents can go off and do the work. And then of course they can all dissolve their marriages later after their past childbearing age and uh, walk off into the sunset. And of course we've had some of this come to pass thanks to the post-war boom and contraception. I'm not interested in building that world, but we already have some of it. And if we have to lean into that with big policy wonk ideas, I'll, I'll do what I have to, I suppose. But I do believe that it's about the formation of children, of course, spiritually, physically, psychologically, educationally, uh, but I think that the best delivery method for that is still the family. And I would put the argument this way. I think that most people with their children have the absolute motive. They love their children, but they do not have the means. And so what you do is that you give them the means. The means is the ability to have somebody stay home. We live in a modern age that can be either spouse. And of course, we live in an age. Unfortunately, we have hit a blank spot for those who think that the province's highway continuous cell service. Uh, this is actually a bit of a mistake, but uh, we hope to get Nathan back uh, fairly soon. Um, I just uh, uh, now 
One of the other things that comes up with childcare is um, we have different cultural approaches to child care in, and elder care. And uh, we have within our society, uh, families that um, deliver um, elder care through adults and child care through elders. Uh, where, uh, and this isn't uh, simply, uh, you know, people who uh, have uh, migrated here from uh, uh, South Asia or, uh, or wherever. Um, if you look at um, race, people who grew up in a racialized underclass, as did I, as, did, as do most Indigenous people, as, um, you know, African Canadians do, um, our grandmothers are really important to us. Right. When I taught First Nations history at uh, Simon Fraser University, it was a shock to many First Nations students that their relationships with their grandmothers were actually a consequence of becoming a racialized underclass, that they weren't a major part of pre-existing Indigenous cultures. And that's why all kinds of new traditions have had to be created for there to be female elders and ceremonies recognizing the labor of female elders because um, uh, that, that, that's actually not particularly traditional. Nevertheless, we can see that in a white British Columbia, there's a lot more demand for childcare outside the home than there is in a non-white British Columbia. Um, is, um, how do we compensate for that difference? Uh, is that just a difference that we're okay with that, uh, that uh, our more racialized populations are less likely to use a government benefit they pay for equally? Um, or do we think that this kind of greater accessibility of childcare will change uh, cultural traditions and equalize uh, a lot of system use in the short to medium term? Uh, but I think that we, you know, now that people are thinking about race as a policy lens, um, I'm curious about how we, um, how we do that in a childcare system. Yeah, so this is actually one of the reasons why I really liked um, the BC Greens platform in 2020, um, specifically on childcare and flexibility for families. And so it's true, um, there are a lot of families where both parents want to work or have to work, and they need um, a space to be affordable and accessible to them. Um, but there are families where perhaps they can get by on one income or they could almost get by on one income and they would prefer a, one of the either, you know, um, one of the parents would like to stay home. And I think we shouldn't just be forcing um, licensed daycare facilities on people. If you want to stay home, we can take some of that money that we would have spent on a space uh, for you and, and actually just give you the money to take care of your kid at home. And um, that's what the BC Greens platform did in 2020. I believe it's a $500 or something a month, up to $500 a month uh, per child under the age of five. And, um, you know, I think it is important to build in some of that flexibility for families so they can do what's right um, or what's best for them. Um, so, 
that was very much appreciated last year. <laughs> uh, Ryan, uh, your thoughts on this? I think it's a good point, uh, but there's other services that they cover the child rearing that uh, that uh, are are available too. Like we have the child tax benefit that's federal, so there's a subsidy for for that's agnostic on whether or not you're you're working or not. And I think the reality is by strengthening the tax base by having more women in the workforce, you benefit those racialized families too, just by virtue of having more resources to deploy on any problem. Um, so that would be my view. Um, but I think it's an interesting point because, yeah, if you have grandma at home that's in a multi-generational home, then maybe this isn't as useful to you. Yeah. And uh, also then there are questions about uh, how to, where does the benefit go? Does it go to the family member who's providing the care? Does it go to the parents? Uh, lots of interesting wrinkles there. Nathan, are you in a, a spot where we can hear you? I really hope so, because I yes. was able to hear you the entire time. Can you, can you hear me? Yes, we can, and we're thrilled. I think, I think that you've hit a very important point there, Stuart, in that it is different depending on your ethnicity, your culture, your background, and then, of course, your values and where you want to go. I think I, think I must agree, in, in part at least with Cheryl, that, that there's got to be basically a universal transfer, a universal credit, a universal voucher, and that way people can kind of spend that as they will. That seems to be the most kind of equitable arrangement who that goes to, I think you bring up a prickly point there. That's interesting. Uh, of course, a lot of that is shadowed in everything from, you know, taxes. And if grandma's doing the work, right, her OAS and her CPP, is this benefit going to be called a taxable benefit? So then they got to hide it with one of the, somebody who's already in a higher bracket who is already going to pay tax. It's, that gets kind of nitty gritty. But fundamentally, I would agree that, that it does need to be down to the family. The family needs to choose. are listening to Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7 on your FM dial. I'm Stuart Parker, and it's at this point in our panel discussion that uh, Sam Schechter was able to make it, and so we switch gears, bringing Sam up to speed on the first half of the panel. Well, we're very excited to uh, report that Sam Schechter has joined the meeting, no doubt uh, looking a little harried. I can only imagine the things that might have delayed you coming. So we're in the middle of childcare. I'm just going to do a bit of a rewind. Um, we started with a hypothetical question uh, that I'd like your answer to. So, and obviously you're the person I mostly want the answer to because your belief that the you are less likely to believe that the Liberal Party is about to deliver a national child care plan than perhaps others on the call. So in 2013, the NDP ran for the first time on a go it alone $10 a day child care policy. The president and vice president of the BC Association of Childhood Educators privately opposed Adrian Dix doing this and advised him against it on the grounds that it was going to prevent the feds from coming out with a national policy by doing what Quebec did and taking a jurisdiction where there's high demand for childcare and pulling it out of the demands for a national system. Uh, so in 2017, the NDP did not run on the same policy as in 2013. And when 
The party took power and said, well, we'd like to get to $10 a day childcare. We don't expect to do it in the next two mandates, maybe the third mandate. Um, so if something goes wrong in Ottawa, heaven for them, and there's no national childcare policy, should the NDP here reconsider uh, a go it alone uh, affordable childcare policy for the province? Yes. So it, <laughs> <laughs> there's a long primer and you're right, Stuart. And apologies to all of our panelists and listeners for my tardiness. But, uh, you know, you are right. Uh, I, I would have every expectation that the federal Liberal Party would campaign on childcare and not deliver because that is one of their top specializations. Um, and I would be happy, I'd be delighted to be wrong by that. Uh, but then, you know, they, they uh, you know, would, of course, uh, uh, get defeated at some future point, only to have the Tories undo whatever progress they'd made. So yeah, I'm, I'm a skeptic of Ottawa doing anything meaningful, and if it was meaningful, of it sustaining uh, through a change in government. And, uh, you know, that, that being said, Stuart, and uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this criticism has been made, I'm a little skeptical of my own party following through on that, because we're in what year of a pilot program at you know, very limited delivery of $10 a day childcare. I myself spend $55 a day on my son's childcare. Um, and I've been eagerly awaiting, eagerly awaiting the chance for me to go from spending $55 a day to $10 a day, because we are at the point that we are no longer running a, a pilot program. We have a small, small scale scratch and win lottery for certain parents who managed to get into $10 a day childcare four years ago and have collected a nice little $10,000 a year perk because of that, uh, I being not one of them. So um, we've got three models of how this might be done. Um, a, um, let's call it a stock, uh, well, let's, let's start with Berlin, a Berlin model where the government creates childcare centers uh, or expands schools to include childcare centers. They have direct employees who are early childhood educators. They run that system and it's pricey. Uh, it, uh, it costs a good deal uh, at, uh, uh, in, a, uh, in the uh, national budget and in state budgets. Uh, then you've got um, the, uh, the Quebec model which is very much the model that BC seems to be building off incrementally. The idea that you, um, you do not directly deliver the child care through uh, the government, you indirectly deliver it through private corporations, charities, and nonprofits. Um, pretty much how things are in the city of Toronto where the city has stepped up in childcare funding. And, uh, and so this allows you to have non-unionized workers, variable standards in training, and much, much lower wages than you see for direct government employees, making it possible for a jurisdiction like the city of Toronto to effectively have, you know, $20 a day childcare or whatever. The third model, um, Swedish, is if your business reaches a certain uh, number of employees as a threshold, you, the business owner must provide the child care uh, and uh, businesses can collaborate in um, delivering child care on site. And it's only people working for very small businesses who then go to the local quango or charity or what have you to get a government subsidized spot. Uh, 
Now, obviously, all these systems have pros and cons. I'd be interested in your vision of, uh, of what a BC child care program would look like. I don't like any of the three options you proposed to her. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the solution that's closest, I think, uh, is somewhere between two and three. Uh, I, I don't like big box corporations running big box daycares. Uh, the for-profit model I don't think is a really great model and, and it's creeping into BC system more and more because uh, it's the, the BC government basically opened up the, the pilot program to say that in the future, our subsidy could essentially be part of your profit margin. And uh, that, that I, don't, I don't like that. I also don't think it's a higher quality program. I think that uh, nonprofits that are mission driven uh, tend to run a pretty high quality of childcare practice. Uh, that being said, uh, the real cost savings in that isn't wages, and that's not fair. That's not right. Uh, you know, th these are, are it's not fair that I as an educator makes make double of the educators that take care of my son for eight hours a day. Uh, that's not fair uh, because I teach adults instead of children. So there, there's a weakness in that spot. And the, the idea that, you know, private businesses would reach a threshold and suddenly have to take over responsibility for that. I like that model to a certain extent, but I'd prefer to be partnership based uh, in that when a, a business gets to a certain size, they don't take over childcare. They just fund it through a mission driven organization that actually wants to be in the business of delivering childcare, not in the business of, you know, manufacturing widgets or selling cheeseburgers or something like this. Uh, th that why would you compel an organization whose mission isn't childcare to get into the childcare business? No, compel them to fund people who want to do this and do it well for the benefit of, of children and their parents. So last question, and then you'll be all caught up to where we are in the discussion. Uh, one of the aspects of the Swedish model is a different theory of what the child care is supposed to be delivering. Um, uh, the Swedish model is based on the premise that um, government child care is a substitute for parental attention and care, uh, that it is not a form of education. And that's why the system highly prioritizes on-site child care at work so that people can visit their child throughout the day while at their job. The other vision uh, very much espoused by the child care movement here is that the child care, uh, that child care should be understood as a form primarily of education, that the people delivering it should be trained as educators as opposed to some other type of worker and that um, the priority is to site these facilities near educational facilities or in educational facilities uh, because it's proximity to things like libraries and teachers rather than proximity to parents. Interested in where you are on those competing values. Uh, I'm very much on the latter side and don't forget proximity to playgrounds, proximity to parks. That's where you find a lot of schools uh, near green spaces that, that have a pedagogical benefit for children. And I think that, you know, I don't like to whip out big German words on the radio show here, but Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft, the difference between living in small, tightly knit communities where you know your neighbors and large urban areas where your networks are based on interest and association, not geography. Most people now live 
in the, the model where you don't know your neighbors that well, your kids might not play together that well, but you know what? I know a lot of people in my political party. I know people in my work and we don't live next to each other, but that's actually who my kids are more likely to play with. And so the substitute for a tight knit committee, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. A good substitute is childcare because you get kids interacting with other kids in a much more constructive, productive, educational, pro-social way than you actually do when your kids don't play with their neighbors, when your neighbors aren't involved in, in discipline. And I'm not suggesting that neighbors should spank their, their kids, uh, their neighbor's kids. Um, you know, that's not the model that I have in mind, but I mean that, you know, my neighbors are never going to give uh, verbal discipline to, to my kid for doing something wrong. We live in a condo building. The neighbors never see my kid without me there. You know, my, my kid isn't running around a neighborhood, but for my child to experience, you know, guidance, leadership, discipline from early childhood educators who are trained in how to do this, and I emphasize nonviolently, uh, and how to do this constructively and, and, and with, you know, a lot of skill that has tremendous value to me. It's not just, a, certainly it's not at all learning about ABCs. It's not the, the you know, model of education people think of in terms of desks and, and, and the ivory tower. It's a model of education about how, how do you create a relationship with another child that isn't based on selfishness or violence? How do you, how do you play nicely with other children? That's a valuable skill. We've got a lot of people who get elected to public office in this uh, country who haven't learned that skill, let me tell you. Well, this is uh, uh, this is good stuff. So, and now we're going to try this skill out a little bit, uh, or rather, the absence of it, because I am interested in people's takes. Not, you know, I mean, everybody is a mixture of loyalist and observer here. And I was just saying today on Twitter, I love the spirit of, um, you know, I do think that we've got like the spirit of the old Camp Kieran's Lewis panel in that everybody here is comfortable criticizing their party. And of course, we're at a remove when we look federally. Um, we're looking at these various federal parties. Uh, but I'm interested in everybody's hypothesis about what's going to happen with the national child care plan Christian Freeland has rolled out. Gazing into our various crystal balls, where do we think that is going to go? And I, I think I'll, I'll go to Nathan first, if that's all right. All right. Uh, can you hear me, Stuart? Perfectly. All right. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I agree completely with Sam here uh, that it isn't going to happen. It isn't going to manifest. Uh, it's, it's a promise being hung out there, and it's not going to come together. And even if it does, it's going to be like a lot of other federal things badly run. I think the child care benefit was one of the smarter moves. I, I have to give the liberals credit here for improving it by actually increasing the amount and making it easier to get to. That's definitely what should have happened. And we shouldn't have tried to cheat people out of the law. The Tory shouldn't have done that. Uh, means testing is a waste of money. Austerity is a waste of votes. Uh, and so that that's where I land on that. But I will once again cite if, if, if I'm just tilting at windmills, let me know. But every time we bring up these social issues, we always are so, ways of solving them or how to help them or soft social services, that sort of thing. I, you know, we had models for this and, and they aren't that far gone. You know, we, you know, it, the, the, 
you know, not the, the way that we did things not so long ago and the parish community and parish life, the idea of having a catchment that, that you belong to your school and your church and to your business and to your factory and whatever else, that's not actually that far removed from us today. Yes, things have changed, but we keep finding very expensive solutions to things we used to do in poverty. And I do not believe that you can pay someone enough to love somebody. So if the love is already there, then simply give them the means to give it. And if we have so much prosperity, we should be able to figure that out. So, uh, Ryan, obviously you're, you're being handed the uncomfortable question this time. What's your hypothesis? Uh, is, uh, is Freeland going to do it? Or what will be the fate of this initiative, I guess, more generally? I, I think Freeland will do it or will try to do it. I think at least two provinces have said they're not interested so far. Uh, New Brunswick and Alberta. Um, but from my viewpoint, I mean, that's a good scapegoat for not doing it. But from my viewpoint, uh, I would I would say do it anyways and let those provinces just not get the money. Just say too bad, so sad, you don't want it, that's fine. You can opt out. doesn't mean you get the funding for it. Um, and I, I think they will follow through. I think they, they had a choice between this and Pharmacare, and this is what they chose. And uh, Cheryl, what's your hypothesis? Yeah, I'd like to think Christia Freeland meant what she said. Um, but I do foresee a lot of problems with the provinces, um, with Quebec, because they already have a system. So how will they just get a certain amount of money? I don't know. Um, and then um, Alberta and, and yeah, I just foresee it leading to a number of issues with the provinces and then not moving forward. But um, that would be great if what Ryan said, if they just move forward anyways and left out the provinces that don't, didn't want to play nicely in the sandbox, um, I'd be all for that. Sam. Yeah, I, I don't have very high expectations. I Quite honestly, I think back to the liberal red book promises of 1993 and 1997 and 2000 that had to do with, as, as Ryan mentioned, pharmacare or childcare that never came to fruition. Paul Martin uh, uh, did childcare under the barrel of a gun because he's in a minority government, which as soon as it collapsed to the Tories, you know, was the, the, the work was undone in terms of building a meaningful national childcare program. Uh, if Freeland gets this thing, to the point that money is actually moving from Ottawa to anywhere but Ottawa, I'll be very impressed. And if it survives uh, a Tory prime ministership of any kind, I'd be shocked. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I think provinces will be wise to press forward with a meaningful program of their own and see if they can take dollars to relieve some of the burden that they've spent themselves or to uh, supplement subsidy or to improve uh, training opportunities or, or whatever productive means of, of channeling that funding they can, because I don't have any faith in a sustained multi-government approach to childcare nationally. Now, this is interesting. I've heard this from a lot of you said, and, and, this is not a question that occurred to me before this show, but I think it's, it's a curious one. When the Canadian welfare state was being built, um, we had uh, the federal government under Pearson, again, a liberal minority, um, able to make up the balance of power with more than one possible partner, a partner on the right and a partner on the left that it could work with. Um, and we saw very, very aggressive um, 
imposition of Medicare under Pearson. Uh, it was um, not a, uh, the, at the time you had a liberal government in Quebec that was furious because the their own party wasn't collaborating with them on bringing in healthcare and hadn't consulted them. Eric Kieran's this is how he rises to national prominence as the Quebec health minister, just livid at his own party for not incorporating what Quebec was doing. And uh, similarly, uh, and then of course they lost to the Union Nationale who wanted nothing to do with it. And this, that was not the only story. You had all sorts of strange folks, the, uh, uh, so, you know, uh, Alberta social credit, uh, was not thrilled with this idea. And yet, um, the feds just pressed forward. Why do you think it is that federal governments are more susceptible to or more easily scared off by provincial opposition with these sort of big nation building programs? Uh, I can take that. that yeah, I, I think, absolutely. I, I think there's a fear about the durability of the issues, for one, that if you have a multi-government agreement, you're more likely to have the the program survive the a change of government. Not that there really was a change of government for a very long time after Pearson uh, uh, brought in <laughs> healthcare. Yeah, um, twenty-one years. <laughs> but I, I, I think that uh, there is, I think the brilliance of the, as a, as a um, somewhat devious liberal, I'll say the brilliance of these kinds of programs, bringing in programs that are broadly popular with the populace, but not so much with the conservative base, is you get to blackmail every single voter over this. You say, if you want childcare, you have to vote liberal, because if the conservatives win, they'll scrap it. Same with the carbon tax, same with, you know, healthcare was the bugaboo in the 90s, no two-tier healthcare, that sign that that Stockwell Day held up in 2000. That's the that's the the liberal strategy here is is you know you, you kind of stick a gun to the head of people telling them you vote for us or the bad guys are going to get in and undo everything we've done so uh nathan what's your take on why there's less of an appetite today for uh, for this sort of thing or it's a less common strategy today i I'd say that a huge amount of it is a pivot to regionalism, which of course has been discussed ad nauseum about, of course, with uh, separation in the West, separation in Quebec, the referendums and everything else that's happened, uh, you know, uh, and then reform and all the rest of it that happened. I think, I think that the simplest answer though, is that while, while maybe Tories need to stop campaigning on undoing everything, I can sympathize with that to a point. Certainly again, austerity, loses votes and it's not helpful and it's always the rich getting richer the poor getting poor and the services getting worse simultaneously then there needs to be a vision in the conservative world uh we built the railway we built the country uh, and we built a pretty good one you're welcome uh we'll uh, continue to build it if we get that vision so i think that there's less there's less appetite for it now right now because there is just a fundamental division throughout the country as to what the country's about. Until we figure out what those values are, we're not going to be able to move forward. We're just going to keep coupling together soft policies that probably don't add up to much and cost a lot of money. Uh, Cheryl, you seem ready to go. Well, I'd like to kind of play off of something Ryan said, which is, you know, like the liberals, you know, what did you call it, Ryan, a black now or something? And, and um, like, I think if they give us these things, then they won't have that anymore, right? If the liberals come through on pharmacare and childcare, then what are they gonna 
what are they going to do? How are they going to get our votes? It's a way of keeping us needing them. And um, yeah, so I, that's part of the reason why I don't see it ever happening. That and they have completely wrong ideas on economics. They see the debt and freak out about a big number and not knowing what it really means. So. Well, Cheryl, I think you've, you've just queued up our subject for next episode. I think we are going to hit pandemic debt finally. But uh, Sam, uh, take us away. Last words on um, why this isn't the age of Pearson, or maybe it is. No, it definitely is not. It definitely is not the age of Pearson. Actually, I really like what Cheryl pointed out. said, if the liberals actually delivered all this stuff, what would they promise one day? They'd have nothing left to, to offer and then break their promise about. And there, there's a lot of truth in that. I used to say that Jean Chrétien was the greatest salesman in Canadian history because he told the customer, if you vote for me, I will give you this product. And he broke his promise. Then he sold it again, the same promise to the same customer. And then he didn't do it. And then he sold it a third time, making him the greatest salesman ever because he got three sales for delivering no product. Fantastic salesmanship. Well done, Mr. Cretchen. Uh, and honestly, I think Cheryl's actually kind of brilliant in her analysis on that point. And you know, so so if, if what do you actually, know? What do you know? Hey, you know, well done. You know, I give I give credit where credit's due. Well done. Uh, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, you know, the liberals, if if they actually deliver this, I think that they can take some comfort in knowing that it'll be undone because that's what happened last time. You know, when they lost to Stephen Harper, they said if Canadian voters vote for this, we'll lose it. And Canadian voters said, Yeah, okay, we're fine with that. We don't value childcare the way we value healthcare. You know, we don't think of childcare as life and death. This is just a nice little social program. They don't think of it as Canadian voters do not think of childcare as an economic program, which at its heart is what it is. It is not a social program. It is an economic program designed to get more people into the workforce and increase our GDP. That's what childcare is really designed to do. The fact that we dress it up with educational issues and all good stuff for kids. That's great. And I value that more maybe than the, the, the GDP issue. But, you know, Canadian voters have not demonstrated that this is an issue that they will really defeat a government over. Well, this, uh, well, I think we've managed to have a pretty good conversation about, uh, about child care. I uh, want to thank you all very much. We don't quite have time for another question, but I think some great stuff has been queued up for next episode uh, with questions of, uh, do we all want the GDP to go up? Do we, and what significance do we attach to debt and deficit figures? So uh, on that note, uh, let's, uh, let's have a lovely uh, first weekend of May. I guess first week of May for those listening on Monday. Bye folks. It's time for our semi-regular editorial here on Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George. While it's true that I continue to love politics as a spectator sport, 
I've really stopped cheering for any teams at all and am mostly going to quit giving out strategic voting advice given my well-informed but utterly abysmal track record of doing so. That stated, I do think that one of the few things Canadians will be able to vote on in the next federal election is child care. I think that uh, Canadians who are trying to cast a vote on climate are pretty much SOL. I don't think any of the parties, including the Greens, have any real intention of moving forward on climate, except possibly the Bloc Québécois, but I don't think anyone listening to this program will have a chance to vote for them. Now, if childcare is a voting issue for you, I do think that how you vote in the next election uh, could affect whether it's a service that the federal government will start supporting more substantively. And so here's a little advice. The Liberals and New Democrats, whenever they promised um, an actual universal child care program, have failed to deliver. And you can go to Twitter anytime child care comes up for the lists of dates that the NDP failed to deliver, that the Liberals will post, and the list of dates the Liberals failed to deliver that NDP partisans will post. It is true that in 1993, 1997, 2000, 2004, 2006, 2008, and 2019, uh, Canadians sent a majority of MPs to Ottawa who supported creating, who said they supported creating a national child care program. Not much result. So, if you want to actually see child care, I would strongly recommend you vote NDP in a riding that the NDP can win, Green in a riding the Greens can win, and Liberal only in a riding that neither of those parties can win. That's the best way of trying to get a continuation of the minority government, because I believe that only with continued finger-pointing by the Liberals, New Democrats, and now Greens, will a minority parliament be able to deliver childcare. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.